0: he does this thing and he does it throughout the movie that just made me laugh every time it's like a <laughs> yeah like a Vulcan grip or something that just like oh my god I could knock him out it was totally a Vulcan grip too it was so funny Star
1: Trek is around when this is happening so is this they just thought that was going to be a trend that everybody and he couldn't.
0: would just surprise him with it he's like hey how's it going yeah yeah he
1: yeah. <laughs> collapsed and the first time you're like he's not even particularly like resistant or anything he's just like this is how I perform my duties I just I just choke people out with my little Vulcan grip <laughs> yeah. Welcome, friends, to episode 271 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And I'm writer Luke Elliott. And this week, we discuss David Loxton and Fred Barzik's 1980 film, The Lathe of Heaven. So last week, we were talking about possibilities with this film and how we would get this film made. Made some predictions. You know, this, this movie kind of exceeded those expectations in ways, while it was a 1980 PBS production, like public broadcasting kind of TV movie. It had a lot of chutzpah. It it took its budget and it used it in really creative ways. And throughout my research, learning that Ursula K. Le Guin was involved in the the development and production of this film.
0: I heard about that. Yeah. So um, I also made some predictions last week. Um, One of them was that everything would be a little easier to follow and like more simplified. And like, I guess that is somewhat true early on. But by the end, I don't think that's true. So I was I was very wrong in that regard. Um, yeah, it's so hard to predict what people are going to do. I I was really hoping for shit to get really psychedelic and weird, and I'm I'm pleased to to report that it does at the very end at least. Um, I I could have actually done with a little more uh, of that kind of stuff, but I think it's budgetary restraints at that point. Sure. Though. Well, and I was even like, how are they going to pull anything like that off? And I was pleased to see that they actually did do it in a very like tv 80s broadcast kind of way
1: like in in like a doctor who way almost like all if you watch all doctor Who, but
0: it works like yeah it does work i just wish there'd been a little more but like you said like i think there are reasons why and um yeah not everything looks amazing but what they're able to pull off of what they had i thought was impressive and yeah i mean this is a we talked about it last week you know this is a strange book and it's got a uh uh really unusual message for what I think people are looking for in sci-fi fantasy or what people expect in sci-fi fantasy. Um, And, and I can see why this isn't like a big Hollywood blockbuster kind of, movie it's just like that's not what this is never gonna really I I think have that wide of an appeal
1: well and you have to think about the Star Wars effect of it all right like everybody's talking about Star Wars and thinking about Star Wars as the big blockbuster sci-fi and this comes out in 1980 and it's kind of that more like subtle and literary you would say in, in the in you know the literary world but here it's more like indie kind of like art art house film
0: Right, well, I'll talk about this in a little bit, but I went to this uh, book club for the Parallel Worlds Bookshop here in Portland. And uh, shout out to anybody who might be listening who was at that—you know, welcome to to the show. Thanks for listening. They had some great observations during that uh, during that discussion we had. It ended up being about two hours, and it was about 20, 25 people. Um, people were really enthusiastic readers who had really thought about the material. And sure, like we covered a lot of the stuff in our last episode, but there was plenty that we didn't really get on or we only brushed on, you know, up against and, and didn't really like dive into. And one of the things that kept coming back and, and I think was, I think kind of essential for me unlocking the story that we we definitely talked about a little bit but didn't really hone in on is the idea of like this Western versus Eastern philosophy and how the Lathe of Heaven um, quote even is like indicative of that. And it, it represents this idea of, like, letting go of control and letting the universe be what it is and stop trying to, like, impose your will on reality. And, like, from a philosophical point of view, that tends to be much more Buddhist, Taoist, like, kind of, le- like, let things go a little bit. And then the Western philosophy of I'm going to fix it we're here to fix the world. We're here to improve the world. Um, and it was an interesting debate because, like, I, I think the idea of, like, people wanting to better the world through their individual actions I think is, is you know, laudable. I think that's something that makes a lot of sense to people. But I think this this book ultimately is kind of getting at, like, why sometimes maybe that cannot be the best course of action and how sometimes... People take that and it ends up leading to authoritarianism, right? Of like, my way is the best way and I'm going to enforce it on you. Um, but the reason I bring all that up is I think we're talking about a movie that's going to appeal to broad audiences. I think that's a challenging concept because I, I, I the vast majority of our media is about people who are taking it upon themselves to better the world and there's not a lot about people letting go right and being kind of passive and saying, maybe I don't need to try and change things. And ultimately that's how I see George Orr and what he at least represents in this book. Um, And, and when I started thinking about it that way, I think it it really kind of unlocked the meaning of the book for me.
1: Yeah. I like that a lot. Yeah. I I mean, I'm not super well versed in, in that sort of philosophy. Like I, you know, I'm I'm familiar (laughs) with it, but not, you know, not something that immediately comes to mind, but that makes so much sense when you think about it that way. Like, you know, that Zen nirvana seeking sort of uh, seeking nirvana uh, sense of living in that way that that is is equally fulfilling and in some ways may be, you know, the better situation. And honestly, it allows you to live in some cases like a healthier life. And maybe that's part of what's going on in the story, too, is like it's kind of like grappling with things are going to get tough and things are going to be easy sometimes and kind of like balancing those and and then you know thinking about that in terms of like your worries and your dreams and the things that are maybe in your subconscious is is definitely yeah. an interesting way to go about that
0: and i can see criticism against this point of view cuz it's like if you're just worried about ever changing anything and the like negative consequences it might have then you that would be like an anti-activist almost stance right like don't try and change anything just let it be and then you'll end up getting steamrolled by other people who aren't doing that <laughs> and who are imposing their own will. So like, I think there is a middle road, right? Like in and, and maybe that I I don't want to, you know, put words in in the mouth of Ursula K. Le Guin as far as like I don't know that that's something she necessarily believed, but I think she sees value in sometimes being okay with the way things are and sometimes letting go.
1: And and last week, we definitely mentioned how she didn't, necess- she wasn't making points as much, uh, you know, sometimes she was, but she, she was also exploring the space and kind of like, you know, bringing up these logical questions.
0: Like if you had the ability to change reality, and then you had two people sort of grappling with that power, one of them represents, you know, Western ideology, one of them represents Eastern ideology, to put it broadly. Yeah, that's an interesting book. And how does that play out? And what did it, what different... You know, tactics do they take, and what are the negative consequences of both sides? So, yeah, I think that that's probably what what happened there. She was just exploring it, and to tie it back to the film
1: here, because Ursula Kayla Gwen was so involved, you you can see her influence, and you can see that the film is very faithful in ways. So, what did she do? Did she write the screenplay? So she was involved in casting, script planning—not necessarily writing the screenplay—but she was involved with the creative process, rewriting some as well, and then also was there for the filming of the production. So sort of a
0: producer and giving influence in that way. Cool. I, I'm glad we did this one for that reason too. I think you know you want to see the one that's probably because like the other thing I'll say about this is very faithful, honestly. Very faithful, and
1: and to to the point that I think you mentioned kind of at the end, it's, it gets psychedelic and maybe a little uh, abstract. If you haven't read the book, I think you're kind of like, left to analyze this in a really major way. It's almost takes a few viewings to really get what's happening there at the end. I mean, like you can understand like how they get from A to B, but sort of what happens along that process gets kind of wonky sometimes, which, you know, by nature of the story.
0: So I want to ask you, maybe this might be a better conversation for the end of the episode, but we can sort of prime it here a little bit, maybe revisit it. Do you think this movie, because like we had trouble finding it, right? Like it's not this isn't necessarily like a cult classic movie you hear about a lot. Now, there may be fans out there. I don't want to I don't want to deny that.
1: And I will say to this, this movie had there's a couple of major reasons. We're going to get into this, but uh, it's one of the most replayed uh, films on PBS. So it, like really? during its era, it was very well lauded. People know about this movie and like this movie, especially people watching PBS in that era. Um, and then there is some rights disputes and also the network that created it sort of let it. Uh, some of the royalties and things like that sort of lapse so that it has to kind of exist in the vault. And then it was re-released in 2000, which we can kind of get, get into how they did that and why they did that.
0: Okay, cool. Yeah, I'm interested. So what I was getting at, though, is like, is its reputation deserved? Should this be a, a more well-known movie? Like, is it, or it, does it deserve that? Is it is it good enough to to be that kind of thing? I mean, we're we're just two opinions, but I'm just curious, like how you feel about it. Were, were you watching it, going like, "Oh, people should know about this movie," or is it more like, "Yeah, I can see kind of why this this has been largely left in the past"?
1: I think that they did a great job of adapting the story that existed, and in ways that I you know, hadn't sat down and hadn't hadn't thought of in a creative way enough to, to think of like how you accomplish this, because they stayed kind of more grounded than my imagination was taking the story often. And they were able to show some of it uh, visually and create metaphor in with, like within the language of the film to sort of show you like the passing of a lot of people. I'm not going to spoil anything more than that, but they kind of showed that through this weird, you know, dinner table metaphor, yeah, uh, which was cool. And it's a it's a cool way to go about doing that. But I think that you can look at the film and see the things that limited it and held it back. And it was honestly a lot of it had to do with budget. I think it's very cool that so we'll get into this a little more. But this was a film that was supposed to be kind of the beginning of a series of, of adaptations of science fiction work. And this one came out and it did fairly well. But I just think the, the production costs and everything were a little high, especially for something that's publicly you know publicly funded which i'm f- very much for like if you you know if you can somehow create in that in that space of publicly funded and and make something that has impact, which I think this film does. I think that's that's amazing. But you can look at it and see that, you know, money bags didn't walk across the street and hand you the best budget yeah. possible to where you could really accomplish some of the things that I think would make this more memorable.
0: Well, and they were held back by limitations of the technology at the time, too.
1: That that as well, yeah. But it's it was limited by many things. And then the legacy, because it was vaulted and because the version that exists was basically recaptured from negatives. And like, because the film... Oh, wow like ceased to exist for a little while you couldn't get it and then they they uh went through the expensive process of i wonder
0: if you watched this when it came out originally that's probably kind of a bizarre thing to be like try and find this movie again be like whatever happened to that weird fucking movie i saw in you know 1980
1: a lot of that (laughs) stuff happened too especially for publicly funded things like this tv movies Uh, and you know if this was shot in 1980 on wide format film like if it was shot on celluloid then you're gonna you're gonna have a better looking image, crisper image. It's gonna you're, you're gonna get
0: more depth in some cases. I wish and, I could have seen it in like yeah. a at least like. DVD yeah. quality, whatever you want to call it, yeah.
1: Yeah, we saw this in 4x3, which, you know, limits the space, but also gives you a little more up and down room. So That's probably that, you
0: know, how it was originally viewed, too, for most Exactly. People. I'm sure
1: they shot it that way. So, But, like, it, just in terms of what our, what we see as more cinematic, that that landscape format allows us to see within the peripheral. It's more immersive. So being broadcast, broadcast quality, because of the, the way that we're seeing it is, you know, it's SD, standard definition. So, you know, there's there's quite a few things that hold it back and the, the, as far as the legacy, but I do think like I said in my research, it was pretty well lauded critically, like people liked it and they thought it was heady and it was something cool for sci-fi at the time. And then there there are definitely the the die fans that know of it and and you know, I saw I saw comments on the Internet of people talking about like, you know, oh, this is such a gem and nobody knows about it, that kind of thing. So it's kind of, out of cool there. to
0: have this little hidden gem. Like it's fun to go find something like this for the podcast. Definitely not something I would have ever watched. Well, I shouldn't say definitely not something I would have been likely to find and watch outside of the you know scope of this podcast. It, but it's fun, you know, and I don't know how well this episode will do compared to our others because I don't think a lot of people are clamoring for this. But who knows? You'll be, Sometimes will be surprised. Wait. You'll be shocked. This is going to be the, our most downloaded ever. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe because people will be like, oh, my God, they, someone finally talked about it. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I think this movie was was cool in, in a lot of ways, held back in a lot of ways. I wish I had had a better version to watch. <laughs> that would have probably improved some stuff. I don't I think there's any stretch where you, where you say this is a great movie. Um, but it had a lot going for it and the story's cool and, um, yeah, it's interesting. I, I'm, I'm eager to talk about specifics. Um, before we get into it though, I just want to say like that book club, uh, I went to was very fun. Um, it was hosted through this parallel worlds bookstore, which is in the Alberta district here in Portland. So if you want to go check out a little, uh, sci-fi fantasy bookstore, I, I highly recommend. I'm sure I'll also be referencing stuff that people said more throughout um and um, i apologize if i because I, ca- I don't know everybody's name super well yet and i'm sure i'll be like and then this one person said because that's the best i can do but um <laughs> yeah there may be some more of that throughout as we talk i, I know i want to talk about more about the aliens people had some really interested in ideas about what they represented so yeah
1: story so portland centric and to yeah to get to chat with other port- portlandians or whatever you, what do you guys call yourself portlanders portlandians
0: portlanders i guess yeah okay I don't really call myself that, but I yeah. think that might be what it is. I <laughs> just didn't know
1: how to refer to you as a group. Yeah, so, we're just uh, hipsters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it must have been fun to kind of talk about it and think about the locations that have, like, you know, universal experiences that you all kind of share in ways. And, and then for Ursula K. Le Guin to be so known in that region uh, and, and, you know, famously f- is from there.
0: So the other thing I want to go ahead and... and uh... I guess I'll tease. Is we put out a poll for our next project, which is going to be a TV show. Uh, quarter, we do these quarterly polls where our patrons vote um, and and help us select. Um, and we've gotten a few like things that we probably wouldn't have selected ourselves. And I think this this month is going to be or this this quarter is going to be another one like that. So stay tuned to the very end. And I'll reveal which of the four uh, options. One, it's going to be on our bookshop link, which will be in the show notes. So if you wanted to go ahead and grab it to to read along with us, uh, that would be awesome.
1: All right. So getting into this film a little more, let's dig into the filmmakers first. There's two co-directors, in this case, David Loxton and Fred Barzik. They were pioneers in the early video art movement. They met in 1968 at WGBH TV in Boston and collaborated for over 20 years until Loxon's death in the early 1990s. The first science fiction drama they created together was a 1972 film called Between Time and Timbuktu based on the work of Kurt Vonnegut Jr.
0: Oh, love Kurt Vonnegut. That's cool. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I thought that was cool. So uh, Ursula K. Le Guin adaptation, Kurt Vonnegut Jr. adaptation. Like, I mean, that's that's pretty awesome. Like they they clearly like had. had I like their taste. taste in <laughs> <literature>. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Loxton was from Canada, grew up in England and then later moved to the U.S. in 1966, uh, where he joined the production staff of WNET, the major New York public television affiliate. In 1972, he founded TV Lab, a program for artists to create video works through an artist in residence program. In addition to serving as the director of the TV lab from 1972 to 1984, Loxton developed the non-fiction TV series, which produced works such as Paul Jacobs and the Nuclear Gang, I Remember, I Remember Harlem, and The Times of Harvey Milk. Fred Barzik uh, is a Boston-based television producer and director who was president of Creative Television Associates from 1965 to 2001. Known for his avant-garde experiments in broadcast television, he worked as a producer for GBH, the multi-platform public media organization from 1958 to 2001. He has produced and directed television programs for PBS, HBO, NBC, ABC, and CBS, directing such stars as Morgan Freeman, Christian Slater, Dan Aykroyd, Rosie Perez, Matt Dillon, Claire Danes, and Lily Tomlin. Um, He won the Venice Film Festival Award and he won some Emmys and a Peabody Award. these two started working together and had this 20 year career together. Um, it's interesting to go back and see some of it because I'm not familiar because most of it's like TV broadcast films from the you know 60s, 70s, 80s. But, you know, to know that that was a big scene during that era is, you know, this is something we haven't talked about on the podcast before. And there's a lot of creativity that. You know, they're they're hosting these like creative workshops for people and having this platform to where you can create even outside of the Hollywood space is huge for 60s, 70s and 80s with experimentation. And and some of those people would definitely get their start there and move into the Hollywood system, into things that that changed how we see, you know, auteur filmmakers and stuff. We saw the 70s be the that change where not only did blockbusters start to come about, but we also got like just revolutionary Filmmaking that wasn't allowed to be made in the fifties and even into the sixties. So you know, it's very cool to note this this little piece of of film history and that these two were involved in it. And then you know, I love to see that they were interested in adapting some some excellent authors.
0: Yeah, very cool. Sounds like they had a quite a career. Yeah, we haven't really touched much on like PBS kind of stuff, public broadcast, and and uh, growing up, I guess Sesame Street. Uh, Mr. Rogers neighborhood, stuff like that would have probably been on PBS. So I definitely grew up with some of that stuff. So it's cool. Yeah. I wish that was more like more prominent these days.
1: It's YouTube now and that kind of thing, like social media, online environment. It's moved.
0: yeah. Yeah. In fact, it's even more like loose now because you can really do just anything and put it on the Internet. Totally, yeah. Our show could have been on PBS. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: I, I just think it's very cool to have something that's publicly funded like this for art. I've always felt like, you know, other countries have that figured out somewhat more than than we do. Like BBC is one that like, you know, they, they make a lot of stuff for our friends in the UK. But yeah, just to comment on that, like, you know, Sesame Street, so creative, so educational, same thing Mr. Rogers, like a good, good natured person in your living room and like that that is like great stuff. So many
0: documentaries sp- have been coming out about him and like films and all this I haven't watched I should watch one of them I don't I I, I think I got kind of like I didn't know which one to which one to watch because there was like several that came out all around the same time
1: honestly there's the doc and then there's the Tom
0: Hanks thing they're both great have you seen them both yeah they're both awesome if you had to recommend one which one would you say the doc
1: I like the doc yeah, but it's because it's like very emotional and like you're really like holy shit, like this guy meant a lot and yeah and uh you know what he what he did for the community and stuff. But the movie's ju- yeah. you know, the movie's great.
0: Yeah. That seems like it might have been a little before your time. Did you watch Mr. Rogers growing Up? Yeah.
1: Yeah, totally. Mr. Rogers. Yeah, my big ones were definitely Sesame Street, Barney and and Mr. Rogers, but you know, I I was at the tail end. I think Mr. Rogers petered out around like 99 or so. I think he, he kind of stopped.
0: I definitely watched Mr. Rogers for a while um and then I I think I kind of outgrew that a little bit and started watching instead like stuff for i don't know ninja turtles and animation stuff was yeah more what totally, i was into yeah. anyway we're off on a tangent let's get into this movie yeah. um
1: we don't need to talk about thundercats and all the other <laughs> fun stuff he yeah. and shit. saturday morning right. cartoons yeah so let's talk about the behind the scenes of this this was shot in two weeks which is extremely short for a feature-length wow, film.
0: two weeks
1: incredibly short uh, supposedly shot for a lean budget of two hundred fifty thousand, but I've also seen different
0: numbers on that. Two hundred fifty thousand in nineteen, you know, seventy nine or eighty. Yeah, but even still, I don't. I guess I don't it's know just... the conversion, but like, let me, let's do a quick. Let's do a little quick uh, conversion. Two hundred fifty thousand in today's money is about a million dollars. Where does that come in for like budgets you hear about for, for like that? That's like the budget for a commercial, right? Like a million dollars.
1: It's it's very low. I mean, it's micro budget indie stuff these days. There, the but it definitely happens. I, and they made a almost a two hour movie with some pretty impressive special effects. Yeah, I mean, I've worked on a feature film that was that was indie you know, micro budget like that million like million couple you know one two million.
0: Yeah. So thinking about that, like considering what was put into this, the fact that we're talking about it at all in twenty twenty three is impressive, right? Like that it's still got it wasn't completely lost to time you know totally it's the era right it's the you're you're the
1: platforms there were so so few platforms that like pbs was one that you could make something for for less money and get it out there the filmmaking techniques don't have to be sort of elite level Like, if you had
0: a couple million dollars to make, like, a feature-length film. That's so bold. Imagine, because, like, you're planning it out, and you're like, I got a million bucks, which, like, I know, like, like everyday money sounds like a lot, but for making a movie, it's not a lot. And so you're like, well, what I'm going to try and do, I'll try and do this really fucking trippy high special effects it's got aliens i'm gonna this is what i'm gonna try and do with a million dollars like that's bold man in 1980 they're like let's do it (laughs) yeah
1: and and they have come out and talked quite a bit about how creative they had to get with that micro budget to to you know convey these giant science fiction
0: uh, scenarios and and like There was a lot of people like looking out a window at something and like we never saw really what it was.
1: <laughs> very And smart, you know, it's very smart. You have to use your bu- two weeks to shoot is also insane. Again, for for example, uh, I've worked on something that's a micro budget like that feature length film, but we shot for longer. So it's like, you know, that's the conversion is like they choose to shoot for two weeks and try. is
0: that to- a cost saving choice at that point? Because I, I imagine the shorter the shoot, the less... Like the more money you can spend per day, basically, right?
1: Definitely, yeah. But there's only so much only so many shots you can get per yeah. day. So it's definitely Straight this off. whole like formula. You have to figure out what's gonna work for you. Otherwise you're kinda like, you know, gonna get people looking out windows at stuff and
0: and that. I
1: will say there's not a lot of you're not gonna get like a one to two million dollar you're not gonna get many one to two million dollar films that are Spe- have special effects and it. Like, like this is crazy because they they were having to get super experimental and do some special effects of the time one to two million dollars these days i think you're going to stay pretty much in like the drama maybe like low budget horror realm that's, yeah it's tough that's tough to do you can't make like uh you know something with tons of special effects these days with a couple million barzik said of their working relationship after after um david had passed they had a unique Relationship. They were co producers and co directors. Barzik would run the set and David would run behind the scenes. When it came to content and the actual physical structure of the set, they had equal input. The reason this was important, especially on Lathe, is that we had a very limited budget and we were moving into science fiction. And let's face it, some of Ursula's ideas were pretty big. I mean, how the hell do we possibly even begin to portray the attack of aliens or wiping out of billions with the plague? What it came down to was we had to find metaphors. We had to find things that didn't cost much money and still led to maybe the same kind of emotional impact. When a bunch of people die, they have the characters looking, you know, horror stricken out the window and then they cut to this like black void room with like a table and a bunch of people sitting at it and then people sort of like get these like... um veils over them and things like that to represent like the killing of many people and they kind of disappear. And eventually it's Actually, just
0: really, I really liked that sequence. I thought it was really creative. It was a smart way to do it. Um, You know, cost saving, but like that sometimes that forces something really cool. And, and I thought that was like one of the effective moments of the film. Honestly,
1: if they tried in 1980 to do some sort of like, you know, disappearing effect on the city, it, it yeah. would have look, looked incredibly bad. They
0: now. never showed the city at Basically again, after that point.
1: <laughs> so in the film, I, didn't, I was going to ask you because I was so excited to ask, like, did you notice anything from Portland that, like, you know, you just see 1980s Portland? I, I mean, it's turns co- out it was shot. It was shot in Dallas. Yeah.
0: So. I was say, there's a couple of shots of the skyline of Portland that I was like, oh, that's Portland. But yeah. Yeah. That doesn't shock me to hear that it was actually shot elsewhere, because at, at a certain point, I was like, I'm not seeing anything that is Portland specific. That's where that big because whatever that big building is that becomes the Institute, we actually end up spending most of our time there.
1: Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, some of that set work, some of that is like different buildings throughout Dallas. Um, I saw that they used Dallas City Hall, Tandy Center, Fort Worth, Hyatt, Regency Dallas, Reunion Tower, Dallas Fort Worth International Airport, and Fort Worth Water Gardens and a vacated mobile oil building in Fort Worth. They they got a a bunch of pretty good locations. And, um, you know, I think that specifically the building that they sold it with, I think that's why they went with Dallas is they wanted some of that, like, sort of, futuristic looking doesn't
0: fit in portland at all so when that popped up you're like oh something's weird now right
1: to get into how this was developed i mentioned before there was like this initiative to create some thought-provoking works right so according to a 1978 article in the new york times during the process of funding a prospective series focused on speculative fiction a category of fairly recent vintage applied arthur c Clarke, frank herbert kurt vonnegut jr anthony burgess and robert heinlein uh, were among the people who applied for this to get their to possibly get their stuff
0: adapted. Oh, interesting. So the authors are applying for it?
1: Yeah. And Le Guin was one of several authors whose novels were considered for adaptation. The $750,000 financing was awarded as the result of an early grant by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Now, I think that might be to go to multiple projects, which is why this one was only 250,000. Uh, to research and develop such a series after much study with a team of consultants that included critics, authors, editors, publishers, and professors, a list of candidates for the series was compiled from which Le Guin's novel was selected to be the series pilot.
0: Wow. That's awesome.
1: It's a lot of cooks in the kitchen with critics, authors, editors, publishers, and professors, like all having input on, I can't imagine the debate that was going on. No, I want this one. No, I want that one. Like having, you know, trying to figure out which would be adapted. Interesting.
0: Yeah, we need more stuff like that. Bring it back. <laughs> right. Get get a bunch of people together and start adapting. You know, some some sci-fi. Hell yeah.
1: So L- Loxton and Barzik actually created one more telefilm together under this rubric. 1983's Overdrawn at the Memory Bank, based on a short story by John Varley.
0: Wow. Okay. I know nothing about that. Never heard of it. Don't know the author. Yeah. But now I'm curious. Well, they they did two of them. It sounds okay. Cool. Yeah, I'm interested, man. I, I'm, I need to find out what that's even about.
1: <laughs> so when it aired originally, it drew a lot of the markets in New York and Chicago. 10% of the audience in New York that was watching television, according to Nielsen, was watching this when it premiered. 8% in Chicago. So pretty that's decent pretty ratings great. for something like this. Yeah. After it initially released, it was then shown periodically over the next eight years. PBS rights to rebroadcast the program expired in 88 and then lathe went on to become the most requested program in PBS history. Wow. People wanted this film back in 1988. Fans were critical of WNET's supposed warehousing of the film, but the budgetary barriers to rebroadcast were high. In a 2000 article, Joseph Basile, director of program rights and clearance for WNET said, Quote, lay people don't understand that to take a program out of mothballs, we have to pay for and clear rights for all participants in the program. It's a difficult and time consuming, expensive endeavor. Interesting. Um, Okay. supposedly they had also negotiate had to negotiate special agreements with the composer of the film score and deal with the Beatles recording
0: excerpt. Yeah, I was thinking about that. I'm like that that when I heard that little bit, I was like, that's expensive. How do they get that? Originally, when it broadcast, because my version—I don't know about yours—did
1: not have the original Beatles uh, singing. But originally, when it broadcast, the actual Beatles track was in the film, ah. which obviously you cannot do. You can do a like a cover and then kind of clear the rights that way. But otherwise, you have to. Is that to, what yours? Yours had a cover? I mine not a cover. Ah. Yeah, it was absolutely not the Beatles. Yeah. And apparently like they were their argument was like to get the Beatles to sign off it would cost an arm and a leg. Sure. And I don't know how they figured it out with like doing a re-recording, like how the rights dispute works with that. Because I, I think even if you cover a song, I don't know if you can just put it in a film. I don't know. I don't yeah, I don't know. It's tr- it's tricky. Yeah, fair use kind of stuff and parody. There's a lot of gray area in there. So once the rights were uh, issue was resolved, the film was cleaned up from two inch quadruplex videotape copies. So that's all that existed anymore. They didn't have the original films, like the reels, and sitting in storage or anything like that. Those have been destroyed. Is that
0: why our, our the what we watched was kind of shitty?
1: It looks like VHS. Yeah, shitty
0: quality. Yeah. yeah.
1: So in 2000, it was uh, rebroadcast and released video and DVD. In addition to the film, this release features an interview with Ursula K. Le Guin by Bill Moyers, which initially aired along the film's rebroadcast. The back cover of the DVD notes, the original quote, the original film materials have been lost forever. A new digital master was created from the surviving two inch tapes and was then color corrected using state-of-the-art technology ghosting and darkening of the image may appear in some scenes it is the best quality transfer possible of this important work using the only surviving materials interesting did you notice any of that ghosting i saw
0: some ghosting for sure and i wasn't i was like is that intentional or is that like i assumed it was a weird artifact but yeah, it's interesting to find out why that was occurring.
1: Yeah. And then WNAT has not said how much it costs to re-release Lathe, stating simply that it quote, wasn't cheap and that hopefully royalties help recoup the expense. So that's where we're at with this film getting developed, you know, kind of tumultuous, uh, difficult to get it out, difficult to get it rebroadcast and everything like that. And I think that's part of the the mystique of the film. People People like it, people remember it and some love it. And then, you know, we only get these. It's it, again, kind of reminds me of Doctor Who. Like some of the old episodes don't exist anymore. People have like screenplays of what happens in some of them, but they're lost to time. And some of them, every once in a while, there'll be one that like is found. Like they'll find like an old reel that somebody has in like a basement or something. Yeah. And then everybody loses their minds and they restore it. It's and... the
0: original run of Doctor Who. Yeah. I assume you talking. Oh, yeah, about yeah. Yeah. The original stuff. Yeah. Gotcha. Cool.
1: Yeah. And then the night that this was first broadcast, there was a major power outage in the Pacific Northwest, which, which meant Ursula K. Le Guin was unable to watch the film based on her book on its first run. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right, Matt, are you ready to get into plot? Yeah. So in Portland, Oregon, in the near future, George Orr is charged with abuse of multiple prescription medications, which he was taking to keep himself from dreaming. Orr volunteers for psychiatric care to avoid prosecution and is assigned to the care of licensed neurologist William Haber. Orr's explanation of his drug abuse is incredible. He has known since age 17 that his dreams change reality and tries to prevent himself from this effective dreaming because he fears their effects. Haber initially considers Orr's fear as a delusional symptom of neurosis or psychosis, referring to him as possibly an intelligent schizophrenic. The doctor puts Orr into a hypnotic trance while attached to the Augmenter, a device he has invented for monitoring and enhancing or augmenting brain waves during dreaming to help with patient therapy. He encourages Orr to have an effective dream, recording his brain function all the while. The world changes slightly during this dream and Haber realizes that Orr is telling the truth.
0: Okay, so let's let's talk about it. So we start out with uh, Orr sort of wandering around well, I guess it's actually kind of peaceful at first, and then we see some like explosion sounds, and then he's wandering around. And it looks like apocalypse has happened. And he collapses, um, and then we kind of transition away from that into him going in to uh to get his uh you know therapy appointment. And this is very similar to how the book starts, and it is very weird. And you're like uh, you like don't know what's going on, and like where you are, and when you are. <laughs> um, so it's a strange kind of way to start, but um it sets you up, I guess, for the strangeness that's gonna occur later. Um and then yeah, I, I even made note of like how he goes into Haber's office and it was very claustrophobic and small and dark. And then how there's this one glowing picture of Mount Hood that then ends up becoming the horse, but I was like, they're definitely setting this up because when he starts um changing reality, we're gonna we're gonna make this way bigger and it's gonna look way different, right? And then I was I was happy to see that definitely occurs. Um, yeah uh, so i thought that was a smart way to do it
1: yeah would you think of like the sci-fi futuristic sci-fi they were all wearing like ponchos yeah with, i was like, like everybody's yeah.
0: wearing a, like a gray like almost camo poncho like it looked almost like it was made to be like like a like camouflage for like an urban setting i don't know um of course it's hard to see in the quality we had like what exactly was going on with that pattern
1: to talk about the quality too like just from somebody who kind of is familiar with this stuff so they The contrast that we get in this is terrible like the black is very black and then like some some of the lighting is really harsh and i think that has to do with the transfer here so like the dynamic range that we're getting here is like very minimal and there are times that like in like for example or like sits up at one point while he's sitting on this bed and his face is like completely black which is, like, not something you... I feel like it was definitely not intentional. So it was it was really difficult to parse. some. Of, I actually took it back quite a few times to, like, get a better look at some of the things that they were using, some of the things they were doing. Now, the, it, that is a particularly dark scene. It, it's not always like that throughout the movie, so it's pretty watchable. When he's in the office, yeah. It was like a cave, man. It was really dark. It was very dark, and I think that has something to do with the transfer as well.
0: Yeah, but I think some of it was intentional because it does create a claustrophobic, you're-in-a-closet-almost kind of feel... That then yeah, totally, definitely. totally changes. So
1: then he puts this device like over his head and I, like, I'm like, yeah. Is this the augmenter? I'm like, And it is, right? Yeah. And like, it you're is. kidding. The so, augmenter like evolves as time
0: goes. Yeah, and, like, well, because with each iteration, he's improving it and making it more elaborate. Uh, there, He does this thing and he does it throughout the movie that just made me laugh every time. It's like a <laughs> yeah, like a Vulcan grip or something that just like oh my god, I could knock him out. <laughs> it was totally a Vulcan grip too. I was like, it was so funny. <laughs> Star
1: Trek is around when this is happening, so is this they just thought that was gonna be a trend that everybody. He couldn't. would
0: just surprise him with it. He's like, hey, how's it going? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> He collapsed. And the first time you're like, he's not even particularly like resistant or anything. He's just like, this is how I perform my duties. I just I just choke people out with my little Vulcan grip. <laughs> yeah.
0: It was so funny. And then like it kept I feel like every time it happened, it got more and more dramatic. And like it
1: did. Yeah. Because because later he's like more resistant. He's not wanting to, you know, but he's like catching him by surprise and stuff. And the first <laughs> time it's just like he's about to lay down into the, the couch or whatever. And he gets him with it. And you're like, why did you do that? <laughs> it's like
0: a little snake bite, too, because it like strikes him. Right. Like a little like. Yeah. It's pretty awesome. It man. made me I laugh, I man. Every time it happened, um, I think
1: that that's a tr- that should that trend should return. It's just Vulcan gripping people into
0: into <laughs> unconsciousness. I mean, I'm really glad that's not a real thing people can. Oh, do Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a, can you, uh, yeah, that would be pretty powerful, um, man. It's so funny that they just like were like, yeah, maybe that's something he could do. <laughs> All right, yeah. it's um, The future. I mean, it was in the book. It's just seeing something about seeing it made it just like that much more dramatic and and funny.
1: I just like to think of Ursula K. Le Guin like off to the side, like, no. Get him in
0: the neck better than that. (laughs) Strike him. It's not Uh, (laughs) subtle. (laughs) Take him down. Um, So one of the major changes I noticed early was... Because, like, uh, otherwise it's pretty faithful. But, like, they changed a little bit how this Ethel sequence plays out when he's talking about the first time. Um, The first time he had his effective dreaming. And it's a subtle... It's like a... Kind of a... I don't know. It seems like it might be a minor change, but I think it's actually significant. in that in the book... He is basically getting molested by his aunt and in defense of himself he dreams her away and she ends up having passed away like previously and we see how that all plays out. In the movie they change it a little bit like he's he's he, he says that she's flirting with him but then he like notably tries to like come on to her and then she and then she says no and then after that he has the dream which does position Orr in a very different place, and it makes him, like, a little bit less of a victim that I feel sorry for, even though he still is, but, like, it's more complicated and messy, and, like, he also seems a little bit more perverted, (laughs) which, the reason I bring that up is because it colors his relationship with Heather later on. He seems a little bit more, like, a kind of a creeper, and then, like, when he's having this, like, later fantasy about her as his wife that whole thing became a little bit colored by that initial uh interaction he had with ethel like it's like oh he's he's like compelling women to yeah anyway and i don't know if that was intentional i kind of doubt that it was but it's it to me that little change altered the character pretty significantly and i don't know that i liked it is what i'm getting. i I mean
1: we didn't even really touch on it uh, that i remember in the book episode but that that whole like interesting, incestual, sexual kind of thing that's going on there. Yeah, I
0: didn't think they were going to go that way at all in the movie, and then they did. I was like, okay, here we go. What are they going to do? And so I'm like, where did that change come from? Why was it done? Like, There's no way to know now, um, but I'm just curious, you know, like what what went into that? What were they thinking it would do? Um, Were they trying to do what it did to me? Like where it made me more, like I wasn't as behind or in the movie from that point on as I feel like I was in the book.
1: Did you also feel like Haber now doesn't care obviously when like the genocide of tons of people happened? He
0: has like a moment where he's like kind of staggers. He's like, "Oh." I can't yeah. Believe.
1: Yeah, but but he seemed less villainous
0: than in what I my imagination was in the book. Um See, even- I don't, uh, that that was an interesting conversation we had at the book club. It's, there was a lot of people who were like he was a good guy who like got caught up in his own power and then like power kind of corrupted him, but like it seemed like he had good intentions and He was able to push, and I think this is true in both versions, he pushes a lot of the blame away. Like, I do ultimately think he's not evil. I think he just gets corrupted by the power of it, and he's convinced of his own righteousness. He's convinced he is the right man for this job. He's convinced that he deserves, in some fashion, to be a god. And that is, of course, like, the hubris of that is bad, right? But like at his core, he's not an evil man. Like he's trying to improve the world. He just like is convinced that he has the answers. When really he should be a lot more like humble and open to the idea that maybe he doesn't have all the answers. And that's where we're getting at this like philosophical question, right? But it was it was notable to me that like six billion six billion people die, and his reaction isn't like oh my god, what have I done. His reaction is, What have you done or? He has this vessel and he puts all the blame on Or every time. He's like, You fucked it up. I gave you this like one sentence command, said Antwerp, and then what did you do? Why did you mess this up? Right? Like it was always like not detailed.
1: And Or <laughs> keeps saying, like, you know, it's my subconscious. I can't I can't, yeah. you know, predict it. And he's like, Well Which you know, he should understand, but he clearly doesn't he, he doesn't. And he's just like, Yeah, he's like, No, it's you're doing something almost intentionally And, and he like,
0: does have this like he hates him. He's like, Oh you fucking fucking or messing it up my my vision (laughs) i had a good idea don't blame me you know something about
1: the character in this case played like less villainous and and in, in a small way he clearly still was pretty much a villain but something about the book the way that he's portrayed is like the whole time he, he and maybe it has to do with like my imagination of the effects nearing the end when he turns into a basically Well we get odd. his
0: point of view several times too where maybe that maybe like seeing how his brain's working actually makes you like him less <laughs> maybe yeah <laughs> whereas here you're just seeing a guy uh, but he definitely uh, he, he gaslights like crazy he lies to to or the whole time and his like cavalier and disregard for or as a human being is gross throughout, right? Like you, yeah, yeah, definitely. it's evidenced by his snake bite, put you under hypnosis. <laughs> yeah. Like I don't give a shit. I'm just gonna use. I guess you. you're right. Yeah,
1: I should have realized that the Vulcan <laughs> grip was the was a <laughs> the calling card of the villain in this case. <laughs>
0: But I, I do think he's not like a, an out and out villain. I think they're trying to to leave enough room for you to say like, well, he has some ideas that are interesting and it's just his execution is just not good.
1: And it's realistic, too, because we see people like this, like good intentions that that then twist into, you know, power corrupts and then they are, are sort of drunk on the yeah. power.
0: It's like he's not willing. Clearly, he's not someone who would be willing to admit to himself that this isn't it, at least equally, as much as it is about him trying to improve the world, is about him like making himself into a god. And I think there's it does a good job in the film of showing when he's going to use the machine himself for the first time at the end. Like, he you could tell this guy thinks he's like, I am ascendant, I am the Lord now.
1: But he and he starts out from the place of like, you know, help the many, you know help the many to and sacrifice the few is kind of his viewpoint on it but then eventually
0: the greatest good for the greatest number that was like a quote that was like on the wall at one point and that's like his that's like his uh, thing it's the greater good the greater good, good. <laughs> um <laughs> and he that's his whole thing right like and and that's why that's he what it starts out as. introduces eugenics and it's interesting they didn't really get into the eugenics element much Um, No, he mentions like, oh, we've we've eliminated most forms of cancer and we've eliminated this stuff and we don't see how. And in the book, it definitely shows us how is through eugenics, which is definitely terrifying. But uh, instead, he just kind of references that. But we don't get that. We don't really see that in the same way, which maybe makes him seem less villainous in the movie because we don't see evidence of, of his eugenics program. It's just
1: funny to talk about this sliding scale of villainy too. It's right? like the person's clearly in the bad category. Like I don't want people to think I think he's a good guy, but he, he had good intentions at the start and was corrupted and then, and then ultimately b- thought he was a god.
0: The reason I push back on it at all is because I think this movie is trying to get us to look at these two different philosophies against one another. And if you label one as villainous Then it's it's then all of a sudden it's like, well, yeah, you want the you want the hero to beat the villain. But more I think it's just more about like the bad sides of his philosophy are on full display here. And we see that that ends up having really negative consequences for reality. Um, And so it's almost more like what he represents is flawed and those flaws are expounded. By what occurs in the in the movie and in the book, and that is what makes him villainous. And there are also some, I think some personal failings we see in in Haber that um, are 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 leading to some of this. That's true to life too, right? I mean, that's true with like any sort of like you know if you're looking at like Lord of the Rings and Aragorn takes over as as the king at the end, and you're like, yay, we've got a good king, but then the follow up is always like, well, what if the next guy's not good? What if he's, you know, and, and he inherits it through birthright because that's how a lot of this shit is passed on. And that's always the idea of, like, you know, the fallibility of, of of electing one person to be your ruler. And, you know, so often they're not good. But even if they are on occasion, that doesn't, like, change the fact that this is a shitty form of governance. um, And a, a shitty form of reality here, too, would be the, to have a have one man in control of all of this, it's just it's always going to to um to fail, and I like that. Or you know I give Or credit for is that he recognizes I shouldn't have this power, and he, the whole time he's trying to get rid of it. Which like Haber can't believe. He's like the first time I met you, you wanted to get rid of this. It's this amazing power you have. How dare you? I want to use it, and that gets back to that philosophical divide, right? About whether or not you feel like you should change reality
1: definitely yeah Yeah. so continuing on Haber begins to use Orr's effective dreams first to create a prestigious well-funded institute run by himself then to attempt to solve various social problems but these solutions unravel quickly Haber suggests that Orr dream of an answer to overpopulation resulting in a plague wiping out three-fourths of the human population the end to all conflict on earth resulting in an alien invasion uniting mankind and an end to racism resulting in a world where everyone's skin is a uniform shade of gray. Orr turns to lawyer Heather Lalosh for help in getting out of his government-mandated treatments with Haber. Lalosh doubts Orr's sanity, but agrees to help him, eventually becoming an ally. Orr falls in love with Laloche. Only after several failed attempts to make the world right does Haber admit to Orr that he believes in Orr's power. Having used the augmenter to record and analyze Orr's supremely complex dreaming brainwaves, Haber begins creating a machine that will allow him to have his own effective dreams and remake reality directly.
0: Okay, so I want to talk about aliens with you. Um, this is something that came up at the at the at the book club, and I want to get your take on it because I don't think we really dived into it uh, last time sufficiently, at least. What are the aliens, and are they are they real? Are they something? wholly created by Orr.
1: Are you saying, like, did he influence them, like, actual aliens to come to the moon, or did he manifest them?
0: Right. Do you okay. think he brought in, like, aliens from out some somewhere and brought them into this world, or did he create them?
1: I think that he whole created them. Like, I, I always took that to be, like... The world ended in this story, the world ended and, and kind of it continued because of him. So I've always assumed that everything that happens is like a pure manifestation of this power in this person.
0: Right. And, and you can get into like uh, nearly everything could be like, what if someone proposed this? What if Haber was created by or because he wants he's he's destroyed the world. He recognizes the danger of his own power and he wants to go to therapy to get rid of his dreams. What if he invented mm-hmm. Haber in the first place? To someone to help him with his dreams and trying, you know what I mean? And at that point it could be like almost everything was, you know, maybe he invented Heather, maybe he invented everything. I mean, he's essentially a God. So I don't know what the answer is. Obviously I don't think there is an answer, but like there's that extreme, but then there, you can move to the other side, which is no, no, no. He didn't create Haber. He didn't create Heather. And he actually didn't create the aliens. He just brought them. And if he did that, then it changes the reason I think this is important is the way we look at the aliens changes depending on their origin Um, because the aliens I think represent some sort of like inner peace and um, greater understanding that they are able to give to Orr. They tell him like in the movie they speak the line about the lay of heaven but it seems like they repeatedly sort of tell him truths about himself. In the book they name what he is and which gives an implication that this is a thing that has happened before that they are aware of. Now, if they are aliens from elsewhere who are coming in and tell them, "Oh, hey, you're one of these people who we know can change reality," that's very different than something he creates that then shows up and gives him a name for the thing that he is. Because then that's all coming from self, right? Like that's that's him looking for a name for the and he he invents something to give it a name. Um and those two different ways you can look at it, I think are very different reads on what this book would then be about, right?
1: Yeah, totally. I, I, you know, that's a really good point because it can't be both ways, right? Like if he created them, he can't also be getting some, you know, unknowable knowledge from alien beings that have experience with it. Unless
0: the message is that you, you hold the secrets and the answers to the universe within yourself. Sure. You know, so maybe you, he could, but it's just very different than like, maybe the answer is out there and you, you just have to find it.
1: You know, once you pose it like that, I don't really know that I feel one way strongly over the other. Yeah. I think it's like, I still think that he's manifesting everything and, and like popping it into existence. But I like the idea more of the aliens coming and saying like, hey, this is, you know, some knowledge that we have from, you know, outside of your existence that we're, we're imparting on you and, and helping. I, I, I like both different directions for, for different reasons.
0: And, and like I said, I don't think the book or the movie answers this. Um... But it's it's it was very interesting to talk about and to, you know hear people like uh, one person said they thought um, Or was an alien himself. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. But like, I mean, metaphorically, if he created them, then he is kind of everything, and he he, he very well could be an alien himself, I guess, in in that sense. Um, yeah, it's just it's really interesting because the aliens are definitely like an enigmatic force in this story that seems to be like at the at the crux of understanding it and on a deeper level and i think this is this is where you're getting at is like trying to figure out what they represent is it is it an inner truth or is it an external truth i don't know
1: and let's talk about how they look yeah in the movie because they look different than i thought they were gonna look so
0: they're described as like turtle like and they speak from their elbow in the book they were kind of they were kind of turtle like they look like they have, like, a big shell or something.
1: Large suits or, although, or something. Although,
0: admittedly, in the book, they they look turtle-like because they're wearing a suit that looks turtle-like. But they're actually, you never see them. They're inside of some sort of helmet, and you never see what they actually look like.
1: So that holds true. I, I like the first time that we see them, I think, is, like, the, it's, like, smoky and, and sort of hazy, so we, we can't get a good look at it. I them.
0: noticed it was, like, one setup, and it doesn't move, <laughs> and we have, like, a light glowing inside of it, but hey, it's clever. And you just hear a voice, disembodied voice, like, speaking over it. And right. th- there's some good use of, uh, you know, like smoke effects <laughs> to make something seem otherworldly, backlight it like from from like a weird angle to where it looks yeah, very strange the, like,
1: tunnel that we'll talk about at the end was yeah, a good use of that. Uh, yeah, I, I like the design, you know, I think it's cool, creative. It, it works for the story. It gives it, it definitely gives it more of an otherworldly. Feel And it, and it's not like you're, tr- it's not a little green man. So it's, it's fun. Whenever you see somebody get creative with an alien's design,
0: it looks a lot different when all of a sudden it's in the pawn shop and moving though. You yeah, had to completely like change the way the suit looked, I think to make that work. Cause they actually hands them the, the, the record, uh, the helmet looks different. It looks like softer and less like, cause it looks like very metallic. In it's, you know, one form. But then this looked like kind of soft and flexible in a way. Some, yeah, of yeah, some kind.
1: In my predictions, I kind of thought they were going to not change the world as much. And they might go more way more grounded. They did pretty much everything that happens in the book.
0: And they brought the aliens. They did all of it. Now, you don't get to see a skyline melting, which I would have loved. And, you know, I was thinking about it. I'm like, there are ways you could have done this practically. It's not like that has to be CGI because there are you could get a model. You could make it out of a material that's able to melt. And you could heat that thing up. I think you could do it. You could have, you know, a convincing looking model start to melt and yeah, sure. Maybe it would look weird and it would start to look like wax, but so what? That's what it's supposed to be weird. And it's supposed to be look, look like wax melting. See, it's funny.
1: I went to like distorting the image too. I was like, all right. So you put like oil and water and stuff and put that over in front of the lens somehow and and sort of make that move around. And like, you only have it for a second,
0: maybe combine the two. Yeah. Do that. Yeah. But I I don't know. I love the idea of like a wax Portland uh, skyline that just starts to melt. That would have been interesting. Yeah, I mean, they get weird with it. And I give them them props for that. How about the gray people? Uh, We got to talk about that. Uh, When everybody turns gray, um, it was very clearly like body paint, which I was wondering how they were going to pull this off. Are they going to like... You know, cause like, I, is there a way they could have like, de- like a uh, color developed one part of the image and not the other? Or is that like beyond the technology of the time?
1: They absolutely could, but there's, that's, but you know, labor and takes like a skilled hand to do it well. And you know, it's difficult. So it's like, you so know. So instead
0: we're just going to cake everybody in gray paint. Gray it, gray it up. <laughs> yeah. It was weird too. Every now and then you could see some skin at like the hairline and stuff where you're like okay but like two weeks to shoot man they were it like pretty it looked pretty good um decent yeah it's such a uh, off-putting effect like it's one thing to read it but it's another thing to see it you're like ooh, this is weird
1: it is weird yeah especially because like you can clearly tell like people they just still there are still distinct features and you're like yeah. that's you know
0: it's <laughs> a great person yeah but yeah. And, and then um Haber I thought it was so funny how he's like good job. Finally, you did something the right way. This makes a lot of sense. Like he loves
1: it. <laughs> Our version too, like with it being such low quality, um, like in terms of the, you know, resolution and, and just like what we're looking at the, the gray, it was just like a weird, like mush. kind yeah. of it over. And then weird. like, they
0: were in a gray building that was, you know, and they were outside at one point is very gray. And then the only bits of color were like on the edges, you'd see a little bit of blue sky. And like, that was, it, it was a very weird looking, and maybe like one patch of grass. So it made it to a very strange looking scene. It worked, I guess. It just like, yeah, it was the effect was still unsettling regardless.
1: It's and like it's supposed to be, which is good, right? Like I, I it just goes to show like how bizarre that would be and like how fucked up. Like as soon as it happens, you're like, it's shocking. You're like, holy shit. Like this is
0: crazy. I've got a question for you. What were they doing and how were they doing these alien ship effects? It it was very like I was not a big fan of them. I, I can see that it was like they didn't know how to do it. So they just did like a, it just looked like a light. But I don't know how you do that. And like it would very ethereal. Like it didn't look like a ship to me at all. Yeah.
1: I, I think it's just they, they composited that over like they, they just shot that or somehow shot it practically and then laid it over top of the film with just that. I just that couldn't effect. even tell what it was. Some sort of rotating light thing. You know, it was like you just take some lights and spin it around or something, some some practical special effect that they tried to use. It just
0: it felt to me like it was a little muddled and they didn't have a clear design vision of and design of what they wanted it to look like. So instead, it just went with like a like a blurry light. Yeah. And How about I, I when I the, like the moon was under
1: it. attack? They did like that crazy like. <laughs> Swooping yeah. effect with like the ships around the moon with
0: wild too. <laughs> the moon stuff looked better than than when it came to Earth. I will grant that just because it was like yeah that looked fine. But um and then yeah the whole invasion sequence I thought was one of the bigger differences. Like in the book we get Portland is getting blown up by all these bombs right. There's destruction and here instead they like hop in their car drive to the institute and then we like hear about some stuff maybe going on but we see almost nothing as far as like what what is actually shown on the screen. And then we see a lot of I don't know if it's actually stock footage, but felt like a bunch of stock footage of like a stealth bomber getting ready to take off and then like a missile exploding and then like it was all like and then like a voice going The aliens are invading <laughs> like just like announcing. Like imagine <laughs> That's what you gotta
1: do when you don't have the budget, right? You gotta use stock footage hey, and the aliens
0: are invading. <laughs> yeah.
1: You, you represent it in some way visually, but uh, let's continue on here. As Haber continues to use Orr's dreams to create change in human society, Orr remembers a dream he experienced years ago, which is briefly portrayed at the opening of the film and which, it turns out, is in fact reality. The world was destroyed in a nuclear war and Orr was poisoned by radiation. In his dying moments, Orr dreamed a world where the war did not happen, resulting in the events of the film as we see them. Haber enters the final version of his machine f- for directing dreams and learns this truth, driving him mad or, okay. Who has whoa, joined whoa, whoa, whoa,
0: whoa. That, that is an interpretation
1: that see that's, I, I think that that's what the movie was trying to say too. to you. I guess so. I could see where you get that. Yeah. Which when you were talking about like, does he create, I was thinking, I was thinking like you can read this as like the world completely ended and he remade everything in his in his design as a God. And so at that point,
0: Ha- and Haber, including Haber.
1: Yeah. And if he really did do that, it leans more into the theory of like he is every single thing in the in the movie is him creating from nothing. Immaculate creation <laughs> is what we'll call it.
0: Well, and, it's, and like, it's interesting that it just confidently states that was reality. And now he changes it because like, I don't know how you know that. How do you know that that was reality and not just a version of reality that he had created? Like maybe he had been dreaming about an apocalypse and fucked up actual reality and, and made an apocalypse happen and then now he's undoing it and maybe the version before the apocalypse happened had a Haber and had an institute and like we don't know we just don't know that so right. and, yeah and, we should
1: we should uh, find this person who wrote this summary and, and
0: ask them no I mean like it's an interesting interpretation and I think it's got a lot of validity to it and I do get the sense that maybe that's what they're going for in the movie I'll grant you that um but I just I I, I think this is such an interpretive work that I'm hesitant to reduce it to like one clear reading and going, this is the way it is. But anyway, continue on. Tell us how it is.
1: <laughs> Orr, who has joined him in the dream state is able to stop Haber's nightmare before it destroys the world. The result is a reality that jumbles together elements of the different worlds that Haber created via Orr's dreams, but is relatively stable. He is heartbroken because the Lalosh in this reality was never his close friend or lover. As the film ends, Orr is working in an antique store run by an alien. Lalash comes in to browse. She has only a vague memory of him, but agrees to join him for lunch. They encounter Haber in a wheelchair on their way to lunch. Haber recognizes Orr, but cannot come out of his catatonic state.
0: Yeah, let's talk about the psychedelic weird scene here at the end. Also, like, on his way to it, like, he stuff starts going weird. And then he just at one point just leaves Heather She says something like she's like, I can't like, no, does he say I can't do this? And then he just leaves her. It's so weird. Yeah, I don't remember. Maybe she (laughs) says, I can't, I can't do this. And then he's just like, all right, bye. Yeah. (laughs) Very strange. He takes off
1: because he's trying to like save the world or whatever. Yeah. He just dips out on her. But this, like you said, this interpretation here, there's many different liberties I think taken, Um, you know, the idea of, of them saying exactly what's happening. You have to have the book context to realize this in the film, I think. For for you to understand that like or is in Haber's creations and you know merging them and all that. That's
0: entering into his dream and like all of that. I'm like, maybe. I think so is you know, talking about the psychedelic stuff, it seems to me that they set out with this, you know, honestly admirable goal to be like, This book's called The Lathe of Heaven. We're gonna put a lathe of heaven on screen. And what's that gonna look like? And they came up with this idea of this like tunnel of light. That is like got mist, I think, kind of going through it um, or smoke or whatever it is. And then there's this tunnel of light and we're going to have Haber in the middle of it. And he's going to be like reaching into it. And that yeah, looks really cool. It's cool. Yeah, um, it's awesome. And it was, I kept thinking about how like a lathe is a spinning implement. And, you know, you, you create something out of that, you know, friction. You're
1: like cutting the light out of the, the area like you would the wood of a lathe. That's yeah. what's,
0: like they're visually representing that in a way that I thought was really clever. Um, and then we even see later when Orr shows up and like he tries to reach into it, his like arm gets all stretched out. And I think that's on the cover of the like poster I saw. Um, it's like as he's entering the lathe, I guess. Um, yeah, like I don't know that that was in the book, but that was a really interesting way to show it visually.
1: Yeah, I mean, like I think this is a pretty ingenious way to go about doing this, and it definitely took a, a significant amount of planning and testing to to see if you could pull it off. So I give him props for it. I, you know, I don't think that it's like the most groundbreaking effect I've ever seen, but it works totally to, to convey. Part of
0: it also in the shitty quality, like I, I sometimes couldn't tell exactly what was happening, which kind of made it work <laughs> in a way. Sure, Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely.
1: Uh, yeah, just in general, I, I think that this was cool. And like, you know, this is something that's attainable. I think young filmmakers like the audience watching something like this sees that and they're like, wow, if I had a camera, that's something I could possibly recreate with, you know, using lighting implements and things like that. So, you know, practical effects, pretty cool. Special effects of the time doesn't look like, you know, as polished as something like you're going to see in a Star Wars film, but it also didn't have close to that budget. And that's that's a uh, cool to see the nature there's plenty of indie films that don't have the effects and smaller smaller budget films that don't have the effects but still can have a good impact and i think this you know this hit pretty solidly where it needed to i think there's a better version that could exist out there
0: you know we're getting here towards the end um before we leave it behind i just want to say like they kept showing uh like scenes of a, of a volcano they had fire like they did some stuff to show the world falling apart because I, I kept like at first, I wasn't impressed with what they were able to do. They're like, oh, something's wrong. And then, like, there would be, like, a wind. And then that would be it. And then they got on a train and they, like, heard Haber or, like, talking. He was, like, talking to Haber at one point, like, yelling at him. But I, all, all I kept seeing was, like, smoke and mist and wind. And I'm like, this is not impressing me. But finally, we did get some fire. We did some get some cracks in the ground. Started looking like, okay, something's actually happening here. Um, and then, yeah, we lead up to this light sequence, which there's another moment where there's, like, a bunch of fucking lights hitting them. They're like different colors, like green and red and stuff. I wasn't sure what that was. Is that him trying to enter into the dream? Like, what is that? Like, I I don't know. It gets very weird at the end and psychedelic and, and I couldn't quite follow what was happening, but I think by design, that's what they wanted.
1: I mean, that's, the you know, there's so many times that you walk out of a movie and you're, you're like, well, you know, what does this represent? What were they trying to get across? And it, some of the time it's not answerable. You're kind of just like it's an it's you're supposed to think something, you know, outside of our understanding is happening. So that's kind of the answer. here And there
0: was like a sequence where the, the sound like goes was like drops and you see Haber like put, I think it was Haber put his hand on this like pillar of light and he like covered like cups it. I don't know what, what was that? <laughs> I don't know. Like there's such a weird stuff, but it, it was cool. I don't know.
1: Up to interpretation. You yeah. Know. Viewer's choice. Um,
0: yeah. I liked it. I liked it. And, um, and then, and that kind of left me at the end with this attitude of like, I think this movie should get remade in the sense that like, I think we should see another adaptation, I guess is what I should be saying of the book. Um, There's not enough in this actual film. Like, I would love to see someone find, you know, and like do a better restoration of this film exist. But I think there's a lot holding it back at a base level that is not going to get improved. And so I would love to see a director come in and make this who is actually willing to be a little less faithful. Like, I want the core and the message to be the same, but really lean into the psychedelic weirdness. Um, The dreamlike nature of it. Make this thing even stranger and even maybe harder to follow. (laughs) But give us some really fucking cool effects that you would be able to pull off today. Um, I don't know. I'm thinking about like that TV show um, Legion. Um, Like there's some weird shit that happens in that show. Like get some get just get strange with it, man. And, and we're talking about a guy who can dream reality into being. Like uh, you, could, things could get so strange. And like, I think it could be it could exist today, and it could be interesting. So uh, so this is one where I'd like to see it. I'd like to see another attempt at this. Now I know there was a newer version adapted, and maybe they tried some of this stuff, and maybe it didn't work. Maybe we yeah. watch this as a bonus episode at some point. I'd be open to it.
1: Um, I so I'd love to see like I, I felt the same way I was like I'd love to see a really strong vision come in and I'd love to see like an, an Alex Garland get a yeah. hold of something like this and just make it weird and go crazy with it or like like Jennifer Kent who we've talked about but in the past who did the Babadook like somebody, oh yeah somebody who's gonna have like a strong vision on it and like will take it and interpret it and change it in ways because there's a lot of awesome bones here in this story and I, I agree like I think a better version of this exists it's just not we not in our time yet,
0: you know, yeah. if we were time travelers, think of ourselves as time travelers. Not, not quite yet. <laughs> not one yet. Day. But man, I think I think this is one that that I would like to see. Oh, and then here at the end, before we leave it, there's like this like credit sequence where they go and they're like getting a hot dog from an alien. <laughs> just make yeah, me laugh. Yeah. Yeah. And then they awesome. like sit down and eat it together. Um, Heather, I, we got, I mean, she's like one of the only other major characters. It She gets like she pops in and out of existence. He brings her back as his wife at one point and then at the end I I do think once again it's a good thing that she isn't this sort of like she isn't being compelled to be a romantic partner from him because that would be very creepy to me. Um, I like that he has to sort of win her over again at the end and that's that's the implication I got.
1: I also felt like she didn't have as much to do in this story as she did in the original work and and I think you know and, and maybe it's just because I didn't feel now. I found their relationship to be like fun and charming at times, but then I also felt like there was some creepiness yeah. going on in there, and and I, that kind of because like,
0: like it felt very very professional and like not romantic for a long time and then all of a sudden it becomes romantic and I'm like whoa where did this come from well
1: and in the film it only becomes because you know in the book we get like the date and he doesn't go to the date and there's that kind of thing that's been set up in the film it's like professional immediately into he dreamed her as his wife and you're like whoa yeah
0: now all of a sudden he's dreaming her naked and she's in bed with him and I'm like whoa this just got weird I thought that she was good overall I just you know would have
1: liked to see a little more between their relationship in some way (laughs) all
0: right man so let's go Uh, book versus movie we got to cast our votes. Um, I'll start. I like the book more. Yeah. <laughs> um, both of them have issues. You know, I, I, I talked about how like it wasn't the kind of books that I absolutely love to read, but I had a ton of respect for it and um, ultimately had a good time. Um, this movie ultimately sent some similar feels like I, I, I respect things that they were able to pull off. But, you know, if I had to pick one going back to the book.
1: So the film, it's cool because I, you know, learning about the history of it and how it was made and, you know, to adapt Ursula K. Le Guin's work and especially over all those other sci fi writers and stuff that, you know, it was talked about. I'm like that. That's awesome to see Ursula K. Le Guin get something adapted over all those other people, because, you know, we we talked about in the last episode, those were her contemporaries and she wasn't necessarily welcomed at first. And I think that's awesome that, that she, you know, beat those people out in a sense. To have this adaptation made. Um, overall thoughts on the film: It sucks that we don't have a better quality version of it. It's but it's cool that we have a version of it. Period. Because there's a possibility that we never have see this if it doesn't if there wasn't public outcry to have it rebroadcast and, and then eventually re-release and restored. So, it, I like to see preservation of film in that way, regardless of how you feel about the film. Uh, I think it's important. And, uh, you know, with all the streaming, things are getting pulled off streaming a lot. Like, I've always been a physical media person and I'm going to continue to be just because I think, like, there's some archivist in me that is like, I want to make sure that these things that I love are protected and, and taken care of. So yeah. I, I love that, that that story exists in this film. That's the history of this film. It's so
0: funny because just, just to interrupt like one second before you give your final, like that's so true, man. Like I, I've grown up and I, I remember thinking like, oh yeah, let's make the switch to digital. But I didn't think about how like stuff would just disappear and like how it's so cool to be able to look back like video games, like have an actual copy of a game Versus just like hoping that someone preserved it and like, you know, shit just disappears and never and you'll never see it again if you're not careful.
1: Yeah. And and it's like something that I think gets done quietly in it. You know, it's not something that like, you know, has this death and it's like, it's gone. It's like, it's just quietly forgotten a little bit. And then somebody at some point is like, let me think about it.
0: Think about online games where the community existed around playing that game and how how important that game was and then how games like that, when the community has moved on and the the company who owns the game isn't going to do any more servers, that is just gone now and and will never come back for the vast majority of them and you'll never be able to experience that again and there's always like a moment where some people played that for the last time and it was one of the last times it ever got played. It's really interesting
1: to think about. You see like, you know, this like regurgitation too, where like, they'll just like remake a game and they'll have the online servers come back in some cases, but it's got to be a really popular game. There's plenty of games that weren't, that never will. Um, but yeah, so overall, I just, I think that, you know, preservation of art in those ways and, uh, you know, still being able to experience it, that, that baked into this is really fun. But I like the book much more. And I, I like the way that Ursula K. Le Guin was experimenting for the time and she was able to give us this really interesting narrative that I, like I said before, I didn't necessarily love, I wasn't clicked into as like the most enthralling thing I've ever read, but I loved the metaphor and some of the analogies that are being made here and the ways that she, um, you know, experimented with the form and, and made it her own. Uh, and it also was kind of bad shit crazy, which I love weird shit. So, so
0: I liked it for those reasons as well. Totally, man. So we're taking the book for this one. So stick around to the very end when we're all announce our next project. Um, if you enjoyed this episode and if you enjoyed our coverage of the lay of the heaven, let us know in the form of a rating and review on whatever app you chose to listen on, uh, help us get to a hundred ratings on Apple would be really cool. Um, you know, we appreciate you checking us out and just let us know,
1: make sure to follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, make sure to like, and subscribe on YouTube as well. Uh, you know, and then share our stuff around if you can.
0: Yeah. Uh, and we are on Patreon, patreon.com slash ink to film. That's where we do our bonus episodes where we, do alternate adaptations, stuff like that. Um, Also where you can go if you want to be able to vote on polls like the one we're about to get into. Uh, And you can suggest things when we're looking for our quarterly suggestions. All that stuff is going to be on Patreon. So we'd love to have you and your support on there.
1: And thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music.
0: We're kind of a public broadcasting podcast in a sense. And uh, we're publicly funded. So you're the public. We are. Lend us some funding, if you're willing. (laughs) (laughs) Very much publicly funded, yeah. (laughs) All right, man. uh, So let's announce our next uh, project, which won with 50% of the votes uh, pulled in. Big Little Lies by, I believe it's Leanne Moriarty. And this is a book I've never read and a show I've never watched. So I'm going to come into this pretty much completely cold. I I am a little bit aware of like who's in it. And I've seen maybe a scene here or there on like a trailer but I basically know nothing about it now I think that's different for you you've seen before
1: right so I'm really excited for you to experience this you mentioned earlier in the episode that this is something that we may not have covered I've always wanted to cover this on the podcast yeah. I'm very excited to, to jump into it this I, one's
0: been on our radar but I just don't know if it would like it's it's nice to get that push into like okay we're gonna do it absolutely yeah
1: so the show I, I'm excited I've seen the show really excited to talk about many different aspects of uh, haven't read the book though so I, you know, I'm really ex- excited to see what what the sources are like
0: so I I think the way we're gonna approach this is we're going to read approximately half the book next week. We'll talk about that and we'll get we'll get into the story, and then we'll tackle the first half of the first season. Um, I'm not sure how many episodes there are, but approximately the first half. And then we'll do a final episode where we finish out the season and we finish out the book at the same time. That way, because I assume that there's some mystery elements to this story, I can preserve the mystery to myself. Um, James will be careful not to spoil anything for me, um, and yeah, well, that way I'll get to sort of preserve finding out what happens for as long as possible. That's one way we found to do these these TV show adaptations that we think works. So um, yeah, if you wanted to read along with us, uh, read half the book by by next week, and you'll be on you'll be on track
1: do you and you're familiar with the fact that it is a mystery because you kind of said so like it'll be i think i
0: read something about the description and it was like oh there's a murder or something so it's some sort of it'll be cool to
1: experience it in this way
0: and get to speculate and you know theory craft. yeah sounds like a mystery cool um and if you wanted to get that book it is in our bookshop link down in the show notes all right man uh i'm looking forward to that should be fun and until next time keep adapting